Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 337, The Illustrious Blitz. Last time, with Prime Minister Churchill breathing down his neck, CNC Mediterranean Admiral Cunningham put the final touches on his plan to attack Italian naval power on Italian soil. It was being rushed because Winston and Cunningham knew it was only a matter of time before the Germans made an appearance in the Mediterranean and they would take control of Italy's impressive naval resources and use them to good effect. As the Second World War is really just a story of human actions and reactions, it's worth pointing out the ironic contributions of one Adrian Warburton. Adrian's connection to Malta was more than just being stationed there in September of 1940, coming over with the three American-built Glen Martin, Maryland bombers flown in from London. Adrian was christened on board his father's submarine in Grand Harbor, the island's capital location, many years ago. After that, Warby, as he would be called, returned to England for boarding school. But there, his uniqueness started to emerge. An intense loner, Warby would barely talk to the other students or interact with them unless he was trying to shock their delicate sensibilities. Warby's father, Geoffrey, a sub-commander in the Mediterranean, was a bit of an eccentric himself, and it seemed he passed something on to his son. Besides shocking his fellow classmates with his extracurricular activities, the less said the better, Warby fell in love with flying, though his parents did not want him to pursue a career in that field. Still, at the age of 20, Warby made the plunge, joining the RAF, and it was here that his unique, or rather limited, contribution began to manifest itself. He earned his wings by passing with the lowest possible grade acceptable. And when he was sent to 22 Squadron at Hampshire, this was the summer of 1939, it was clear to all that his enthusiasm for flying was not matched by his ability to fly. Thus, he was rarely allowed in the pilot seat to add on to his flying hours. But at least the squadron commander did not have to explain to his superior why the squadron was down a plane or two. For Warby may have loved to fly, but he wasn't all that great at the beginning part or the ending part, namely taking off or landing. So, as the months went by, Warby was sent to one job and then another, all within the RAF, of course, but there was little actual flying on his part. And his personal life wasn't that much better. When in Hampshire, he secretly married a local who divorced him soon after. Between this and his mounting debts, he feared being dismissed from the RAF, the only good thing in his life. 
Being pushed off to another group, soon Warby was in Blackpool, now a part of a navigational group, where he could contribute without flying. But now, with the Battle of Britain in full swing, Warby's former commander, at 22 Squadron, decided to give him one more chance, but in a way that would get the mixed-up young man out of his hair. He was told that he would be a part of another squadron that was flying three Marylands to Malta. Before the Marylands could take off, as they would be flying over enemy-controlled France and then through the Mediterranean, the route had to be planned out carefully. Not knowing of Warby's rather limited successful contributions to the RAF thus far, he was given the navigational job. And whether it was his desire to put his back to his country and all his problems, or something that finally clicked in the young man, Warby planned a solid route, and on the way, got detailed photos of Sardinia that Admiral Cunningham was delighted by, which didn't happen often. Next, Warby's new boss and Australian flight commander, Titch Whiteley, saw something in the eccentric young man. He couldn't put his finger on it, but he saw potential and wanted to give the man a chance. Thus, Titch decided that Warby would be in charge of enemy ship recognition. And again, whether it was desperation or a sliver of self-confidence, soon Warby was a master and was giving lessons to the other crewmen though no one could identify an enemy ship faster than Warby. But it seemed that Warby's world was about to come crashing down when several pilots were grounded due to Malta Dog, a local name for dysentery. Warby only had 35 minutes flying time in the Marylands, but he was needed to make a trip to Corfu. So Warby, with two crewmen, started down the runway. But then the plane started zigzagging, to the point that one of the wheels broke off. The idea was for the flight to be dangerous starting the moment it was in the air, over enemy territory, not trying to leave the ground. Flight Commander Whiteley was pissed, now down to two Marylands, but again, there was something about Warby that made the Australian not give up on him. And as Cunningham's attack date on Taranto was closing in, the Admiral demanded more photos. Nothing for it, Whiteley sent Warby up again. His takeoffs and landings were not a thing of beauty, but he no longer broke the aircraft, trying to get airborne. For the next few days, after more ugly takeoffs and landings, the photos and information that Warby gave to his superiors astounded them. He was a walking camera and telescope, able to identify enemy ships during flyovers and retain all the information for accurate debriefings. The photos only backed up what he already said. Then there was the subject of his courage, or as his crewmates put it, his stupefying death wish. On cloudy days, he would still go up, well, barely, but then he would simply fly under the clouds, just over the waves, to gather his information. After one landing, Warby's plane was found to have a piece of an enemy's aerial from a ship stuck in its wingtail. That's how low he had been flying, but the information was priceless. With each reconnaissance flight, Warby and company would be harassed by Italian fighters, and sometimes, but not all, a pursuing plane would be shot down by Warby. 
The British crew was just trying to survive and get home, but as the weeks passed, some noticed that Warby was racking up an impressive number of enemy planes that he downed. There was no time to think of it now, but soon Warby would be called Six Metal Warburton and would go on to be the most highly decorated RAF photo reconnaissance pilot of all time. Which just goes to show, sometimes a person has to find themselves, and sometimes that's right in the middle of a war. When Warby's crew brought back information that proved that the naval base at Taranto currently had five battleships, 14 cruisers, and 27 destroyers in port, Admiral Cunningham gave the order to proceed with the attack, telling the carrier illustrious, good luck then. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. During the night of November 11th, 1940, the carrier Illustrious launched 21 Ferry Swordfish biplane torpedo bombers. The details of this attack can be found in episodes 70 through 72. When the sun rose the next day, Taranto had lost half of its capital ships. Mussolini reacted by having the surviving ships moved north to Naples. But as they were kept together, Warby would have no problem keeping his eagle eye on them. Admiral Cunningham was beyond satisfied. The battle of naval power in the Mediterranean had shifted, and British convoys in the Med were that much safer. Malta would go on, for now. Back to Warby, two months earlier, no one had wanted to fly with him. Now, he was the hero of the hour, and Cunningham recognized his contribution, which is why the misfit, who finally clicked, was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Of course, the Japanese were equally impressed, and one may say, inspired by the events at Taranto. Later that same month, Malta received another convoy, another 20,000 tons of supplies. A week later, the 4th Battalion of the Royal East Kent Regiment was deposited on Malta. Thus, her ground defense was gaining strength, which meant nothing if her air arm remained weak, and it did comparatively so. 
On November 17th, 12 hurricanes took off from the carrier HMS Argus near Gibraltar, and whether due to a lack of fuel or lack of experience, eight of those pilots crashed into the sea before reaching Malta. What should have been a shot in the arm for the defenders became another reason to mourn. Despite this horrendous loss of men and planes, the people of Malta, civilians and military personnel, felt good about their chances. And with Christmas closing in, well, that was just another reason to let loose a little. Dances were had, plays were put on, and alcohol was consumed. And why not celebrate? The Italian army was having more than a little trouble in Greece. Supplies were reaching the island, and the Italian troops in North Africa were having their collective nose bloodied. The people of Malta were more optimistic than they had been since Italy came into the war. On December 10, 1940, the British Royal Navy's new Unity submarine, or U-class subs, were coming online. That day, the HMS-S Upholder left Portsmouth Harbor, just above the Isle of Wight, and started on its way to Malta. It would take about a month, as the smaller sub could only travel 11 knots at top speed. She could go faster on the surface, but at 540 tons, being too small, relatively speaking, the waves could make travel up there uncomfortable. As the crew of 31 got used to living on top of each other and used to each other, they were not the only ones making their way to Malta. As may be remembered, Commander George Simpson, or Shrimp, was about to take over the sub-command at Malta. But first, he had to meet with Admiral Cunningham in Alexandria. As usual, ABC kept it succinct. Shrimp was to use his subs to attack Axis shipping heading south to North Africa. Not so much shipping heading north, as it was probably empty of supplies or troops. Unless, of course, the vessel was a warship or a tanker or the like. Then its current status, be damned, sinker. Cunningham ended with, If you don't get results and don't dispose your forces to suit me, I will very soon let you know. Dismissed, Shrimp sailed for Malta and met with Pop Giddings, the man who had been in charge of the subs, part-time. Shrimp was impressed with Pop's work, and the latter agreed to stick around to run the sub-base on Manoel Island. And on January 10, 1941, the U-class sub-upholder reached Malta. Yet it wasn't the only one to make an appearance, for on that same day, German planes arrived in the Mediterranean, and their actions that day manifested the worst fears of Churchill and Cunningham. During the second half of 1940, Admiral Eric Rader, C&C of the German Navy High Command, had been dropping hints into Hitler's ear about future operations, that is, if the British were still in the Mediterranean. But being a land-based warrior, Der Fuhrer, was none too impressed. That is, until Hermann Goering, the C&C Luftwaffe, started pouring the same speech into Hitler's other ear. Ironically, Raider and Goering hated each other, which pleased Hitler. He liked that about his subordinates. But these two became allies on this issue. After all, with the British gone from the Med, 
the Suez Canal was opened, as would be the Middle East and all its oil. Not to mention fixing Mussolini's faux pas in Greece. Hitler said yes to Malta being taken, but later, for now, she could be harassed to the point of inactivity only. Once Russia collapsed, then Malta would see access boots on her shores. Thus, on December 10, 1940, the day the British U-class sub upholder left Portsmouth, Hitler ordered General Hans Ferdinand Geisler's Flieger Corps 10, the 10th Air Corps of about 200 planes, to leave Norway and settle themselves in Sicily, which was done by the first week of January of the new year. There, ready to go, were 150 Heinkel HE-111 and Ju-88 twin-engine medium bombers, another 150 Stuka dive bombers, and finally 50 Messerschmitt BF-109 fighters, all with highly trained and experienced crews. On January 7th, Admiral Cunningham, aboard the battleship HMS Warspite, was heading out of Alexandria to meet up with another convoy from Gibraltar. A man of routine, ABC was on the bridge early on the morning of January 10th. And the morning had gone well enough. Just northwest of Malta, ABC's escorts had met up with the latest convoy, turned around, and altogether they started making their way to the southeast. That's when two Italian bombers swooped down and launched their torpedoes. Simultaneously, Cunningham was feeling several things. Anger and shock that the two raiders had gotten close enough to launch while being undetected, then relief that their fish were going to miss as the carrier's CO, Captain Dennis Boyd, had managed to comb the torpedoes, that is, maneuvered his vessel around the deadly weapons, and further relief that the two overhead ferry Fulmars, the two-man fighters from the illustrious, would put pay to the Italian aircraft any second now. This, of course, meant that the Fulmars had to dive down to get to the enemy aircraft, and when they did, another enemy formation was detected, but this one was much larger. With the second group of enemy planes coming in, and the two Fulmars now too low to intercept them, the order Repel Aircraft was sent to all personnel on every ship, thus each man rushed to action stations. The carrier began sending off additional Fulmars, but they could not climb in time to do anything about the approaching planes. Even then, one of the Fulmars was sent into the waves by one of the new arrivals, just seconds after leaving the flight deck. And seeing the Predator's goal-shaped wings, Cunningham recognized them as Stuka dive bombers. The next question was, who was flying them, Italians or Germans? Being in the Mediterranean, Cunningham and most of his crew had not gone toe-to-toe with these already famous attackers. Still, the basics were the same. Anti-aircraft fire was flung into the air, directly into the path of the dive bombers. Already mesmerized, Cunningham and those around him went deeper into a trance when the 40 Stukas, rather than dropping their bombs from their current height, went over, pointed their nose down, and dove right at the illustrious. But as they did not release their bombs until extremely close to the carrier, that's when the Admiral knew 
there were German pilots in those cockpits. Within six minutes, the illustrious was hit six times. The first bomb barely missed the carrier, sending up a huge fountain of water, and there would be two more of those during this attack. But not so the other well-placed explosives. One bomb hit the base of the bridge. Two more bombs went through the lift system used by the aircraft, down in the hangar below, under the flight deck. There they detonated, which destroyed any aircraft stored there. In fact, a pilot had been in a full mar in the lift, currently between decks, when the bombs came tearing through. Another bomb took out one of the several AA guns. Amazingly, due to training, though everyone else had hit the deck, in this case literally, with the Stukas straightening up after releasing their bombs, the AA crews had kept firing the whole time, hoping to at least score a hit, though the enemy had completed their task. Taranto had been avenged. Only after the last Stuka had flown by did the men on the flight deck break out foam and extinguishers to combat the raging flames all over the ship. Though Illustrious's steering was damaged, her engines were mostly operational. Hence, Cunningham wanted her to continue on to Malta. Some of those recent convoys had brought over repair crews. Perhaps the carrier could be fixed while staying in the Mediterranean. Yet the attacks were not quite over for the day. After Cunningham and his ships had left Alexandria that morning, another convoy left after them, as it was assumed, with the British ships heading out. This part of the Mediterranean was relatively safe. So two more transports made for Malta, while a tanker set sail for Crete. When the attackers came a second time at Illustrious that day, it was a different game about to be played out. For one, the escorting ships were on full alert and expecting an attack. As such, the AA gunners opened up right away, which made the carrier's captain feel better for two reasons. First, the flying lead would hopefully keep the Stukas from shooting straight, but also, as the fires below were still being fought, to have less ammo on board was good, just in case the blaze got out of control. But making this second round different than the morning, the fighters from Illustrious had flown on to Halfar Airfield on Malta, refueled, rearmed, and then returned to the area. Thus, they were already in a defensive position when the 25 dive bombers arrived. Between AA fire and the defending fighters, six Stukas were splashed. The illustrious did not suffer any more significant damage. Through this and their dealing with their 126 dead and 91 wounded, the carrier sailed on to Grand Harbor. As the limping and listing illustrious pulled into Grand Harbor, medical personnel came down to the docks while tugboats went to meet the blackened vessel to help with its final leg. Among the medical workers were dock personnel who knew they would be expected to clean up the immediate mess to then begin the real work of making the carrier battle-worthy again. First, the last of the fires were put out. Then the decks were cleared, which allowed all hands to paint the deck yellow 
so it would blend in with the docks and the buildings of French Creek, the fourth berth to the port side upon entering Grand Harbor. Illustrious would be patched up enough to make for Alexandria. Meanwhile, the majority of the dead were placed on a minesweeper to be taken to Malta's southern coast for a proper naval burial. But in the stress and speed of that hectic day, many of the bodies were not properly weighed down. Hence, soon, corpses would be spotted floating underneath the southern cliffs, as if this day needed a reminder. Now that the initiative was back with the Axis, the defenses of Malta had to be rearranged. First, as there were only 16 hurricanes and a few gladiators, and the bulk of these had just been delivered that morning, it was decided to make the AA guns around the harbor the island's main defense. This left the fighters to engage the enemy planes only before they came into range of the ground guns. The gun crews were told, in their turn, surround the approaching enemy aircraft in a box of flak. But after the bombs were dropped, the AA guns were to go silent and let the hurricanes take aim at the Stukas as they would be coming out of their dive and thus vulnerable. It would require teamwork, practice, and trust. But not to let the Germans and Italians completely own this day. That night, Wellington bombers based at Luca Airfield, were sent out to hit the airfield at Catiana on Sicily. Through January 15th, only a few Stukas appeared once, and their attack on the wounded illustrious was anything other than accurate or intense. This was probably due to the heavy clouds, which cleared soon enough. In a sign of the times, the attackers were gone before the hurricanes could even get up to intercept height. Fortunately, the bombers were off target. The surrounding docks suffered more than the carrier. After the sound of their engines died away, all that could be heard were the clangs from the dockyards. But January 16th was an altogether different story. Out of the sky came 44 Stukas, 17 Ju-88 medium bombers, and 10 BF-110 fighter bombers, or ME-110s, protected by 10 CR-42 and Machi-200 fighters. With the Italians overhead for cover, the Stukas dove down, cutting through the AA fire to drop their bombs. Some of these pilots actually flew below Valletta's fortress walls for better accuracy. The problem for the attackers was that the illustrious was lying in French Creek, that is, in between the relatively tall buildings of Corradino Heights on one side and Zanglia on the other. Further, the first few bombs, striking some of the nearby buildings, raised a lot of smoke. Thus, the latter bombers had to guess where the ship was, or had been, the last time they saw it. In truth, only one bomb hit the illustrious, causing a bit more damage. But the merchant vessel Essex was also hit, which killed 15 of her crew and seven stevedores. Not that the smoke had had enough time to clear, but when it did, the people would see that the structures to either side of the wounded carrier had sacrificed themselves, with almost three dozen or so locals buried underneath the rubble. 
This attack had only taken minutes as the German pilots, well practiced, swooped down, dropped their bombs, and quickly gained altitude. But 15 minutes later, another attack began. The illustrious was relatively safe, but all around her was destroyed or scarred. Besides the Essex damage and loss of life, the repairs on the outside of the carrier were undone, and Parlatorial Wharf was damaged, which would affect repairing ships in the future. When the smoke finally cleared, the celebrated three cities, that is, the right shoreline, if one were to stand in the middle of the island and look toward the Grand Harbor, were in shambles. Within Singlia alone, at least 300 houses had crumbled. A nearby church collapsed with at least 40 people inside. Now all perished. Once again, the Maltese began to leave the coastline. They had not taken the Italian attacks seriously, even staying outside the shelters to watch the hurricanes run them down and start blasting away, which always brought out cheers. But now, those who looked up on January 16th saw that the hurricanes had met their match in the Messerschmitts. Though ten of the attacking bombers had been downed, some by AA fire, some by the defending fighters. Either way, the more light-hearted days of the war, if such a thing is possible, were over. The coast would be abandoned again and left in its current destroyed state. Many would never see the Grand Harbor again. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just wanted to take a moment and say hi to some new members and thank those who have donated. So as far as the latest members on board, the USS History World War II podcast, is that mixing metaphors? I don't know. It didn't feel right. Anyway, uh, there is Ken Medell from Bainbridge Island, Washington, who also sent a nice message. So thank you, Ken. Uh, Ian Donaldson in the UK, who recently became a member, but also bought my last Churchill coffee mug. So I'll have to order some more of those. Ian, thank you very much. It is on the way to you. Then there's uh, Stay, Stee, Stu, Patterson, sorry about that, from Durham, UK. Um, not sure exactly what the phonetics on that one is, so I just thought I'd throw all of them out there. Uh, Lynn O'Brien from Downer, Australia. Victor uh, Weiser from Oakland, California. Christina uh, Raysbeck from Queensland, Australia. Those are my latest members. Thank you very much for supporting the show. It means a lot around here. And as far as donations, Wayne Jackson from Australia. Oh my God, a lot of Australians. Love you Australians. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Can't believe I just did that. And then uh, Benjamin De Cruz from Exeter, England. So it looks like Australia and uh, the UK loves me. My own country, America, uh, not so much. Who knows? But anyway, so thank you to everyone. And I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Take care, everyone. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.